The Bible reading this morning will be taken from the book of Luke, chapter 22, and I'll be reading from verses 63 through to 71. I'll be reading from the New International Version. Verse 63. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, Prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Christ, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I ask you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand side of the Almighty God, the Mighty God. They all asked, Are you then the Son of God? He replied, You are right in saying, I am. Then they said, Why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. And the Lord Place the reading of this verse. And the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah. A king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence, and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him 
and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! For the third time he spoke to them. Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. Good morning. As we work our way uh, towards Easter, we have been sitting with Jesus for some time, and uh, we might be tempted to forget that today we're actually marking Palm Sunday, which was the day that Jesus entered Jerusalem. It's amazing what can change in the course of a week, isn't it? Uh, it's entirely fitting that uh, we're actually looking at this passage on Palm Sunday for reasons that, I'll, that I will get to later. Um, but we've been working our way through Luke's gospel, uh, the way of the king. And as Luke puts the spotlight on Jesus, we, we remember here that the crowds in the street were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This exclamation of praise. And as we saw in that scripture video there from Lumo, that cry of Hosanna would be replaced with crucify. Crucify. It's amazing what can change in a week's time. Last week we saw that Jesus revealed his glory through his composure under captivity. And that it was by offering himself to be taken into custody that Jesus allowed God's love to, sh to break forth and release us. This morning we're going to be uh, looking at verses 63, excuse me, 2263 to 2325 of uh, Luke's gospel. And I've titled this message, The King's Procession. And in one way, you could say that Palm Sunday was about the procession of the king. It was about, it was about his entrance. Um, but, but here we're going to see there's a different kind of procession going on. And I want to start with the question, how should we read this? How do we read this text? Or how, what was it like for you watching that, watching that video? I would say the video itself was probably toned down a bit. It was probably a little less graphic than what Jesus would have looked like and what that experience might have been. But how should we read this? I don't know if you find this tension at play within yourself at, at Easter time, but, but for a lot of us, many of us who've been in church for a long time, we, we get to this, this part of the year and we sort of have to prepare ourselves 
We prepare sort of feeling bad for, for Jesus and we kind of bring in this measure of guilt and we sort of read this passage and, and we read this as sort of, ah, oh, how barbaric, ah, oh, how sad. And you sort, of, you sort of cringe and put your hands in your lap and you, and you say, oh, I'm sorry, God. I'm really sorry. I'm sorry, Jesus, that I put you through this. But is that how we're meant to read this? Is this meant to be a, a, a tragic play? Is this a story of a righteous person facing injustice and we're meant to be appalled? Or is there more to it than that? How are we meant to read this? There's a key verse in this passage that I, I, I want you to focus on and I think it's the key that unlocks everything here. You need to realize that in these, this display of Jesus kind of being passed around back and forth uh, while he's under arrest, Jesus says surprisingly little. In fact, it's one of the things that, that mark this suffering as unique and distinct, is how little Jesus says. But he does say something to the rulers of his people, to the religious elite. And this is what he says in verse 20, excuse me, verse 69 of chapter 22. This is the key verse. In the midst of an interrogation, he says, from now on, the son of man will be seated at the right hand of mighty God. From now on, the son of man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. Now, if you read Mark's gospel, the way he writes it, there, there's a future orientation to this. You will see in the future, you'll see the Son of Man at the right hand of God. But I want you to notice how Luke records this for us. There's an immediacy to this for Jesus. And that affects how we read it. As we watch Jesus get passed around from, this, from ruler to ruler, it's really important that you don't just observe a tragedy here. Because according to Jesus' own words, this is a coronation. How else would you describe it? He says it for us right there. From now on, Jesus says, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God, he's splicing together two great prophecies of the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 7, Psalm 110, Daniel 7, where one like a son of man ascends into the majestic glory, ascends to the throne of God Almighty. Psalm 110, where David writes, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand while I make the, your enemies the footstool for your feet. And he goes on to say later that all the nations will be subject to this one. Jesus doesn't say much, but he does say this. Uh, but by the look on some of your faces, I'm like, yeah, this is kind of, this is strange, isn't it? Because from a human side, we want to be over here and we're, and we're just filled with all this emotion and guilt and, and, and this, this feeling of poor Jesus. Poor Jesus, what they did to you. That's so sad, Jesus. 
And the voice of the Son of Man is saying, I'm, I'm going from now on to be seated at the right hand of God. So our big question this morning is, how can this be our king? That's what this, that's what Luke's trying to unpack for us. And it's something that you will sit with for the rest of your life. Because the king of heaven ascends his throne through our shame. This text is sort of teasing out this question of who is fit to be king. Is Jesus fit to be king? It does this by teasing out his identity. It does it by, by this reflection of why is Jesus silent and, and where is the majesty in all of this? For our overview, Luke portrays Jesus' trial as, as a mock royal procession. Right? Uh, as Mark alluded to earlier, if you're receiving a dignitary, I don't know, maybe you've had the chance to be in the company of fame or greatness of somebody with great power has come, right? I know some of us don't open our doors to our home because we don't want our friends to see how it is. Imagine, imagine how we would feel if we knew we were receiving a dignitary, right? And, and when, when a state or a nation receives a dignitary, what do they do? They take them around to all the most important people. Well, Jesus is going to undergo this sort of mock procession among all the important people of his day. And like a king, he's going to have his guard. He's going to have his meeting with his elders. He's going to have his meeting with the authorities. And finally, he's going to stand before his people. The irony is thick. Whenever I talk to an American and they find out I live in Australia, the first thing they always ask me is, have you tried Vegemite? I don't know. It's what, what we're known for here. And, and I say, yes, I've tried it. Have you tried it? Oh, it's disgusting. And what I always say is, no, it's not disgusting. It just depends how thick you spread it. Right? Right? Spread thinly over buttered toast. Mwah! Perfect. Perfect. The heads are nodding. Yes. Right? Sorry to make you all hungry here. Right? Right? So some of us, we like our irony that way. I just like a little bit of irony. I just, I just want it spread thin, just something for me to muse about, right? But Luke here is writing like an American trying Vegemite for the first time. He digs the knife out and he spreads the irony real thick, real thick. And for some of us, it's going to be hard to actually take that in. But it's there. Oh, it's there. In fact, you could probably say he spreads it on twice. So, in this procession, we're going to see sort of four audiences that Jesus has. Now, I've conflated, obviously, uh, in the third section there, I've conflated uh, his audience with the authorities of his day, with, with uh, Pilate and Herod. There's different things going on there. But for the sake of, of time and for the sake of this structure, we'll see Jesus before his guards, Jesus before his elders, Jesus before the rulers of his day, and Jesus before his people. And in terms of the sermon, the overview, you need to know that each audience that Jesus has here, it depicts a specific rejection of Jesus' identity. And it is these rejections that reveal why God crowned Jesus to be the king. 
That's that thick irony. And so to continue with the irony, in the first scene we see that God's prophet is blasphemed. To blaspheme is to, is to speak in an unholy way. And the next we see God's Messiah is denounced. To be the Messiah was to be the anointed one. You, you were anointed with oil or special clothing to show that you were different. And Jesus is rejected as a commoner. As a king, he's banished first immediately from the presence of Pilate, then from the presence of Herod. And finally, he's just relinquished altogether. And lastly, God's redeemer, God's servant is rejected. But the big idea that you need to take with you today is that Jesus' condemnation that we watch in this text was his coronation. And it's that that makes him fit to be our king. Let's pray. Lord God, would you minister to our hearts with the time we have left this morning? May you speak to us through the scriptures that we would be people who are wise unto salvation, that our hope would be anchored firmly and securely to Christ, the word of life. And may that same word dwell richly in us, bearing fruit of righteousness, so that we would be blameless on the day of Christ Jesus, that when he comes and when we see him, we stand before him face to face, we are full, our arms full of the fruit of good works that have been done in his name. We ask this also in his name today. Amen. So, Jesus before his guards, follow with me, verses 63, 64, and 65. Jesus has been arrested. Peter is ushered off the scene. He leaves weeping. And Jesus is left with the men who were guarding him. And ironically, those who were entrusted with his protection and care become those who abuse their power and authority. I would love to say that this is a unique story, but I've heard so much, even this week, of people who are entrusted with power and authority and who abuse those that they're meant to protect. If that's you and your experience, know that Jesus has endured very much the same. Luke writes, the men who were guarding him began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy who hit you. And they said many other insulting things to him. Now the way Luke records this in the original language, it, it, it gives the sense that, that these things kept happening. It's not, it's not that somebody insulted Jesus and then somebody hit Jesus. No, it's, it, it's a better sense that, that they, they kept mocking and kept beating him. It also makes sense chronologically of the flow of time in this section because Peter was watching Jesus. Look, they exchanged that glance in the nighttime. Peter was around a fire. It was night when that happened. And now the next note that we have, it's daybreak in verse 66. So Jesus was with these guards for a while. Don't let the shortness and the brevity of the verses detract you from, from what actually happened. This mocking and this beating was ongoing for some time. Enough to take it all the way to dawn. Which is why, no disrespect to Lumo, I think Jesus would have had more than a little scrape on his cheek by that time. What's ironic is, Peter has just discovered that Jesus is in fact a prophet. 
Because he told Peter that he would deny him. And as much as Peter said, no, 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 you're going to get that one wrong, Lord. With all due respect, these people may deny you, but I'm never going to deny you. And there the cock was crowing and Peter looked at Jesus and he realized he knew everything. His word had come to pass. And so again, Luke dips his knife into that irony and begins to spread it. Because the one who knew all and the one who was aware of what was going on and what was happening to him is being crowned with the blasphemies of foolish men. They were mocking him with insults that were horrific. And so they did what men can be prone to do when they get together. And they have no accountability. And they begin to abuse their authority and their power for sport. And they demean Jesus and they beat him. Moses had said that there would be a prophet who would arise after him. And that God's people were to listen to him. In two of the most significant events in the, in the life and ministry of Jesus, his first, his baptism, you recall, the spirit descended on him like a dove and a voice spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And then Peter would recall the voice on the mountain as he's, Jesus is transfigured. He's speaking with Moses and Elijah in this, in this sort of peek into the glorified state. And Jesus is there conversing with them about this time, about his exodus, how he'd bring liberty to his people. And the disciples heard a voice from heaven and said the same thing. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And the one that they should be hanging on every word, this one they mock as a prophet. As Paul would write, we suppress the truth in wickedness. So Jesus suppressed, Jesus is suppressed here, the truth. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth. The truth. Here, he's rejected. Before his elders, verses 66 to 71, at daybreak, now Jesus is brought to the people who were going to render a verdict on him. Jesus here, at daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together. That's important. This has all been planned. This has all been in cahoots. And Jesus was led before them. If you're the Messiah, they said, tell us. Now what's going on here? Is this a genuine inquiry? Do you think by now this is a genuine inquiry? Is this them sitting around with a, you know, with a cup of coffee or a cup of tea, sitting across the table in the, you know, in the low light of the kitchen in the wee hours of the morning, saying, you know, I've been just, I've just been agonizing. I, I, I think, I think there's something about you, Jesus. Just, just tell me, are you the Messiah? Is that what this is? No. This is hunting for some reason to accuse him. They want Jesus to catch himself in his own words. It's the same strategy they employed a few chapters ago. If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus responds, and again, this is, he's not going to say much more than this. If I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. 
Now, we might be tempted to read that and think, Jesus, come on, give them a fair shake, just say it. You know, they wanted to know, why don't you just say it? Is it really fair, Jesus, to say, if I tell you, you will not believe me? Isn't that just good sort of conversational tricks? No, it's not, actually, because if you recall in the interrogation that took place in the temple courts when they sent the spies to catch out Jesus and they're asking him, by what authority are you doing this? By what authority are you doing that? And they bring that whole sort of situation. If the man, you know, if the husband dies and, and the wife marries the brother and they marry seven, and they're trying to do all these things, you know, the paying taxes to Caesar, all these conversations they're trying to trick Jesus in. After he passes all those tests with flying colors, he says, I got a question for you. When David says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Who is David talking about? Jesus asked them that question. And they said, we don't know. You see, Jesus had tried to show them. But they weren't interested in the truth. They were interested in an outcome. And so he says, verse 69, from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. We already looked at that verse. They know what's going on here. Jesus is making a link between his identity as the Son of Man and between his, his identity as the Son of God. And so they ask a very logical question. Are you then the Son of God? And Jesus says, well, you've said that I am. Again, I am, key language in the Old Testament denoting God's presence. Then they said, why do we need any more testimony? Here their, 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 their plan is revealed. They were just hunting for something to charge Jesus with. We heard it from his own lips. And so Jesus before his elders, we, hear, we see here that our Messiah, he's denounced by the corruption of spiteful leaders. There's people who are just out, just out to refute Jesus and deny him. Ironically, these are the very people who were meant to recognize him. <laughs> of all the people, these should have been the people to know who he was. Not the woman at the well. Not, you know, not, not the centurion who's got the sick servant. You know, these were the ones. And yet, even though they're undergoing the pretense of having a real conversation about this, they're really just looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. Why? Because they hated him. They hated him. Before the rulers, we see Jesus here, he's, he's banished by the blind ignorance of self-serving authorities as he moves, uh, as we move into chapter 23, Notice now the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. Their argument's going to change here. It's going to shift from, the accusation shifts, it shifts away from Jesus' identity as Messiah, who the Romans don't really, you know, it's not categories for them. And it shifts to something that will get Jesus into trouble. Verse 2, they began to accuse him saying, we have found this man subverting our nation. Now Pilate's job, his one job, Pilate, you got one job, <laughs> There's one thing that Caesar wants from you, Pilate. Just maintain the Pax Romana. <laughs> just, just keep the peace. Just don't let any uprisings come. Don't rock the boat. 
That's Pilate's one job. He has jurisdiction over Jerusalem. And the Jews know this and they say, you know what? If we're going to get Pilate's attention, he needs to see Jesus as a threat. And so that's what they do. They bring out these two, these two facts about him not paying taxes to Caesar. Again, that's what you had to do. Every, Rome, every, every, every people, every, tree, every group had to pay taxes to Rome. They totally dismissed Jesus' wonderful answer when they sent their spies. And here they have the facts. And they're accusing Jesus. But more importantly, they, they accuse Jesus of being another king. So Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so. Now, again, the irony here, and John Carroll in his commentary on Luke really brings this out beautifully. The irony here is, Jesus is a threat to Caesar. <laughs> Jesus is a king. He would be a threat to Rome. And in fact, 300 years after his resurrection, Christianity would, would, would overtake Rome. The emperor himself, whether you believe Constantine's conversion was genuine or not, there he is professing Jesus as Lord. Jesus was a threat. And the person who's responsible to, to identify those threats, Pilate, he says, I find no basis to charge of this man. Again, more irony. He's right in that he's innocent, but he's wrong in that he is a threat. But again, he has blind and self-serving ignorance. I find no basis for the charge of this man. This is the first of three times Pilate's going to do that. They insisted he stirs up the people all over Judea. He started in Galilee and he's come all the way here. Now, Pilate doesn't want anything to do with Jesus. He, he, frankly, you know, he's had the dream from his wife in the morning. He just, this is bad juju, right? There's a sense that, that, that Jesus is not someone he wants to deal with. And so he hears that he's from Galilee and he's like, aha, this is my loophole. He's from Galilee. He's not, you know, this is not from my district. Send him off to Herod. Now Herod has another agenda. If you've been following a loose gospel, there's a very, very minor theme that Herod has, was first curious about Jesus, and then he was hostile toward Jesus. And those two ideas come together as Jesus stands in front of Herod. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased. For a long time, he'd been wanting to see him. This is a note. Some people are just genuinely spiritually curious people. Being spiritually curious doesn't make you a believer. It can be a step on your way to becoming a believer, but spiritual interest and spiritual curiosity doesn't make you a believer. Herod wants to see what the hype's about. Notice Jesus gives him nothing. Jesus was never going to dance to the world's tune, let alone Herod's tune. He'd hoped to see him perform a sign of, of some sort. This is Herod the Tetrarch. It's not Herod the Great who had all the babies killed. This is Herod the Tetrarch, the same one who had John the Baptist beheaded. So we know he's a violent and a cruel man. He was also a Jew. And so it makes sense that he would be in Jerusalem for Passover. He plies him with many questions. Jesus gives him no answer. 
The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, dressing him in an elegant robe, and they sent him back to Pilate. Again, the irony. What do dignitaries do when they meet one another? They exchange honor. Oh, welcome, sir. Here's the key to the city on behalf of the mayor. Here you go. Oh, you know, welcome, CEO of X company. I'm the president of such and such bank. We've organized this wonderful, this wonderful lunch for you. Dignitaries and heads of state are meant to recognize the honor in one another. And, and, and Herod, in his way, is doing it, but it's totally in an undignified way. He's mocking him. And they send him back to Pilate. We don't want him. Pilate saw him as an incredibly dangerous threat. Something he didn't want anything to do with. Herod was somebody who saw him as, he had no use for him. Again, it's a reminder that people, when they encounter Jesus, some people, the whole thing just spooks them. The whole spiritual world, the spiritual reality, the spiritual life, eternal life, God, an authoritative being. They just want to maintain the status quo. Don't, don't rock the boat. Don't, don't come into my life and talk to me about all this Jesus stuff. I got a good thing going right now. I'm on a good pay packet. I have a nice relationship, a nice house. I don't want anything messing this up. Other people, Jesus is entirely there like everyone else in their lives to serve their own interests. And when Jesus doesn't serve their own interests, they say, you know what? See ya. These authorities are self-serving. And they banish the king who is a servant. <laughs> king Jesus is unlike any other king because this king is humble. This king serves his people. This king dies for his people. And these people in authority, they're just trying to cover their own backs. They're just trying to get ahead. And so finally, as we come to verse 13, after we hear this ominous note that Herod and Pilate became friends, this is the whole, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Here we come to verse 13, and Luke introduces a new element. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people. Now, you would have seen in the clip that, that this is all taking place outside, and that's important because this is just Passover is the next day. And so the Jews didn't want to go into the Roman government official area and defile themselves and not be able to participate in the Passover. So all of this discussion of Jesus and his fate is taking place on the steps of Pilate's seat of governance. So it's outside, it's in public view. And now the people begin to congregate and show up. Verse 14, he says to them, you brought me this man as one who's inciting the people to rebellion. He I have examined him in your presence and found no basis of your charges against him, neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he's done nothing to deserve death. Our first clue that <laughs> this is a capital offense that they have on the docket. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. More irony. Again, you weren't supposed to do that. If you're free, you go free. You don't get punished and then go free. He's desiring, uh, but the crowd shouted, all the more, away with this man, release Barabbas to us. 
Barabbas was a murderer and, and a rebel. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. This is the third time. They kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time, he spoke to them. Why? What crime has this man committed? I found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I'll have him punished and then release him. Pilate's trying to cut it both ways. Yeah, we'll rough him up a bit. We'll make him think twice about doing what he's been doing. But I'm not going to kill him because, frankly, I haven't found any charge, any reason for the death penalty. And what Luke's trying to tell his readers and Theophilus and everyone from, from that day on till now is that Jesus dies an innocent man. He's going out of his way to make that clear. And then we have verses 23 to 25. And listen to how Luke records this. But with loud shouts... They insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for the, the one they asked for and surrendered Jesus to their will. You see, ultimately, Jesus, king that he is, on his way to his coronation, has an audience before his people, and the people reject him. As Peter would stand up and say at Pentecost, you killed the author of life. As Jesus has been saying in his parables, teaching about the, 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 the king who came to his people, and they didn't want him to be king, so they sent him away, and they killed him. And so Jesus, as he goes on this parade, he, he's given a guard and the guards mock him. He has an audience with the ruling elders, the clerics, the clergy, the leaders of his people, and they denounce him. He goes to the powers that be and instead of recognizing his dignity and matching that with dignity, they rob, they, they rob him of that dignity. And finally, when he's with his people, his subjects, the very people he came to save, they won't even give him the right to live. Can you be any more rejected? And yet, as Jesus trades places with Barabbas, the seat of punishment is his throne. Jesus' honor was to bear our shame. If you think about it, could we have a more fitting king? Who would best represent the king of humanity than one who was scorned by humanity? Oh, what a troubled lot we are. His honor was to bear our shame. Some themes to think through. And I want you to be thinking how Jesus' journey to God's throne transforms our journey into glory. It transforms our faith because this text shows us that Jesus' identity, he is the prophet, he is the Messiah, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the servant of God who would redeem his people. Do we believe that? 
It transforms our guilt. We see Jesus' innocence, and, and there is no one in this story who comes out clean except for Jesus. It transforms our witness. We see Jesus silent as he's accused, as he's followed from place to place by the people that hate him. How do we go bearing scorn? It's hard to bear shame. It's hard to bear scorn. How do we go with that? Jesus stood there silent. And it transforms our hope because Jesus' redemption becomes our anchor. Come on in, kids. We're nearly done. Great to see you. So three questions for you to ponder. Are you proud to serve this king? Am I proud to serve this king? I'll be honest, you read this story, you, you, you read about Jesus and how he's treated and the fact that he sees this as his coronation. Are you there? Are you there waving, waving the banner, waving the flag? Paul would say that he counts all things lost for the sake of knowing Christ. He considers everything rubbish. I got to be honest with you, part of me is like, I don't know if I want a king like this. You know, I like my king to flex their muscles. I like my king to, to, to look the part. And man, I don't know if he looks the part. If this is how my king reacts to mistreatment, how am I to react to mistreatment? Does this mean this is expected of me? And I begin to think, if he is truly king, am I proud to serve him? What? What price do I pay to avoid shame? Where are you and I compromising? Because you know what? The scorn, we just can't bear it. The shame, we just can't bear it. We know we would look like fools. What price are we paying to avoid that? And finally, what, whose honor am I seeking? Who is your boast? It's good to be proud of people in your life. It's good to have somebody that you say, you know what, I'm just proud to know them. I'm proud to be their friend. I'm proud to be their coworker. I'm proud to be their spouse. I'm proud to be their daughter, their son. I'm just proud to know them. It's good to have those people in your life. And when you have those people in your life, you say, I'm really proud to be known by this person. What you do is you seek their honor. You seek their glory and you seek their praise. Are we proud to belong to Christ? Do we seek his honor? Let's pray. Father in heaven, will you bless our hearts as we prepare this week to contemplate your death, the death of the son, and his resurrection and all that that means for us. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. Thank you for saving us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.